This week in Retronauts, there ain't no party like a third party. that one. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the latest episode of Retronauts. You're hearing it right now in your ears because it exists. That's proof of a latest episode of Retronauts. I am Jeremy Parrish, uh, QED, and I'm hosting this week. But with me here in the studio, we also have, as usual, I am Bob Kotick Mackey. <laughs> no relation. <laughs> Another Bob in gaming. Yeah. All right. But he's a villain. Oh, I'm I don't know about kidding. that. I have no opinion on he's, this man. He's the hero of this story. He is. He is. I'm Jazz Rignall. I'm from US Gamer on loan temporarily for the afternoon. <laughs> Thanks for coming down. And finally, rounding out this panel. I'm Steve, member of the Bucket Brigade, Lynn. The Bucket Brigade? That is the uh, patch right. for Kaboom. Yes, that's All right. right. Oh, that was a uh, Crystal Chronicles reference or something. <laughs> <laughs> that's a different episode. We talked about that on another episode. We did. I've got buckets on the brain. Yes. yes. Uh, and this week, we are talking about Activision. Um, I know Activision is not necessarily the most popular name these days, but in Retronauts terms, it's important because Retronauts – Activision was the first video game third party and they helped set the stage for basically the modern games industry as we know it. I mean there were a few kind of pivotal, pivotal players. There was Atari. There was Nintendo. But Activision had a huge role to play too. So I want to go back and look at sort of how they came to be and also what kind of games they created. Uh, I think the quality of Activision's early work is really – was instrumental in making the concept of third parties viable. Uh, also, le- lawsuits helped. <laughs> lawsuits were very important there. But um, yeah, just like I, I think video games would be a much poorer place without Activision and we've never really given them proper tribute. So this is the chance to do that. So um, to begin with, why don't we go around go around the room and everyone tell their story. Um, like what, what has your experience been with those early Activision games? I actually don't have a lot of experience because I didn't own a 2600, but I'm yeah. definitely familiar. You know, I've played some of the games and I'm certainly familiar with many others and with, with the, the kind of people involved. Hmm. But what about you, Bob? Well, uh, the 2600 was my first console and coming from a, a, a poorish family who eventually became middle class, uh, we were poor at this time. So there was no system more appealing than the Atari 2600 uh, because it was like, oh, every game is a dollar. Uh, go to the flea market, even new, even new on like a, an end cap at a store, just a bunch of games for a dollar. And as a kid, I knew how much a dollar was worth and it seemed amazing. Like this whole game is a dollar. It comes with a box and a book and everything. So – um, I was buying a lot of these at the time at flea markets and, and stores and things like that for very, very cheap. So all of these names really mean a lot to me. I mean, I played a ton of fishing derby, a ton of skiing. Uh, you don't have crackpots on here. I want to say that is Activision. I'm almost positive it is. But that's, that's a really cool game where you uh, are dropping uh, flower pots on spiders advancing up a building. It's very cool. But yeah, like all of these games you have listed here, Jeremy, are really like they're the foundation of my Atari my Atari life. Although I did miss out on the more famous games like Pitfall and River Raid. I never played them, but I did hmm. play Grand Prix. 
I did play um, boxing. I did play, uh, again, fishing, derby, skiing. Enduro I loved uh, because it went through different, like, weather conditions and things like that and day and night. Uh, yeah, like these games, I played a great number of them and I have very good memories of them. And of course, Ghostbusters and things like that. So yeah, I, I played a lot of Activision games um, long after they were relevant on the Atari 2600. Jazz, how about you? Yeah, my, let's see. I mean, I, I kind of grew up reading the very, very earliest games magazines. And so yeah, Activision were had a really good name for producing, you know, great great console games, games like Hero and Decathlon and River Raid and um but it was it wasn't until I bought myself an Atari home computer that I actually started playing games like Kaboom, uh, Ghostbusters, um Pathfinder and then when I finally uh made the jump to uh, working on magazines that was Commodore 64 magazine and that was when I really, you know, Activision became synonymous with quality, really. They had a lot of titles that were just just brilliant and destroyed many joysticks playing Decathlon. Um, you know, that was a real joystick wrecker. Uh, for those that don't remember, it was a, a game where you had to wiggle the joystick as fast as possible to make your man run and and throw javelins and, and basically do things that you do in a decathlon. It was that was really really good fun, but uh, yeah, it was uh, an, an absolute destroyer of any kind of controller that you happen to have. <laughs> and gave everybody like Popeye like forearms, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, moving the back and forth. Right. Is that why video gamers are so misshapen these days? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. So, Steve, what about you? Um, so yeah, I had a Atari twenty six hundred, and I think the Activision titles really set themselves apart, um, as Jazz mentioned, in terms of quality. Uh, for me, as I mentioned, I, I got the Bucket Brigade patch in Kaboom, um, which for a long time was my favorite game. Uh, and you know, when Pitfall came out, I think everybody who had a 2600 knew you had to play Pitfall, uh, at least you know in my schoolyard. This is well before the internet. Uh, Decathlon, in fact, Decathlon, I, I think I broke that out about a year ago mm. uh, at a party, and we had a bunch of people just saying this is murder on joysticks and arms. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I, it was both uh, Activision and iMagic, I think, I personally sought out when I was looking for new games because the quality level generally was better than what I was getting from everything published by Atari. So I think I, for a long time I might have just purchased Activision games. I mm-hmm. was the same way, actually. I mean, I could read. I didn't really know what a game publisher was, but uh, seeing the rainbow, the Activision yeah, rainbow, the, the like, color, it spoke right. to me because, again, my mom would bring home a handful of games from someplace. Either <clears throat> you know her friend's kids were getting rid of them or whatever. You could plug in a game and be like, I don't know what this is. I'm already dead. I don't know what's happening. With Activision, it was there was a very clear uh, line of quality that it had to meet uh, for most of the games. So, yeah, I did associate that rainbow with a better game, I think. Right. Yeah, branding is something that um, has kind of largely disappeared in game packaging because everything is like the console branding. You've got, you know, your uh, PlayStation 4 or Xbox One or whatever, like the stripe at the top or the side of the the box. But uh, up until maybe like the Super NES Genesis era, you really had um, kind of like corporate branding for different publishers. And Atari sort of kicked that off with, you know, their original set of games that had like the the solid color box and the the sort of rounded window with the fake drawing of the the game graphics. And I guess uh, actually they they didn't have the um the 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 airbrushed foot paintings actually. Yeah, like the painterly. But there was still like that that style and the typography. There's a book that just came out, uh, The Art of Atari 
Yeah, that's uh, beautiful. Which yeah, is, yeah, I got that for Christmas, yeah. and it's just, it's like, I look at that and I'm envious that I did not create that. Like, that is a, <laughs> an amazing piece of archival work. Like, they went into the archives and, and found, you know, like source material, like paintings and everything, and, and talked about the typography and everything. Uh, it's just a great book, and you should definitely check it out. It's like 25 bucks. It's a great deal. Um, but yeah, like, Activision was, was, you know, kind of right up there with that. And they created this distinct look for their games. And, uh, you know, you also had iMagic with its silver boxes and whatever. But, uh, like, there was definitely a, a sign of quality with the Activision logo and the branding. And uh, I think most, that was important. Were most of their uh, covers line arts, like, sort of an enhanced depiction? Yeah, of yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what, I, that's what yeah. I was thinking when I started right. to talk about Atari. But okay. Atari did the, like, the fanciful, like, here's kind of what you should be thinking about when you play this game that is two sticks and a ball. Whereas Activision was more like, nah, here's what the game actually looks like. Right. Yeah, for the most part. Yeah. Right. And their games were always so nice looking, you know, even on the extremely limited Atari 2600 that they could do that. Uh, like one of the common themes in, in the write-ups I did of the games here in, in the notes is that their animation was extraordinary for the 2600. You think of 2600 as being like a, a stick man walking with two frames of animation, but they always had like this really complex animation cycle. And that was actually the genesis of Pitfall, wasn't it? Was the animation cycle for the running man uh, who would become Pitfall Harry. Mm. Uh, I think the, I went to a David Crane's presentation like five years ago at Game Developers Conference and uh, he talked about like, you know, the running man cycle uh, that, that kind of became Pitfall Harry and everything, like even, you know, the boxing game, which is this kind of weird, super abstract, like top-down top down view <laughs> yeah, that it's weird. doesn't really look like boxers, but like the way the the little boxers animate is just miles beyond what you really associate with 2600 Yeah, games. I mean, I played uh, Fishing Derby a lot. This is a game I played a ton of. I don't know why. I still like fishing in video games, but uh, you had the stick men sitting on the pier, but you also had, uh, like, the line going into the water and the fish actively, like, struggling, looking like an abstract of a fish, but it was way different than the combat game or the Pong game. There was right. more of a uh, more of a representation on the screen than you would see in other games. It looked more high resolution, right? You compared, too, like, yeah. Frogger to Freeway, right? It's like, oh, right. look, there's yeah. way more lines of traffic. Mm-hmm. I can see a beak on on the chicken and things like that. So. Yeah, that actually became a point of contention, which is someone, someone added to the notes. Um, I and we'll talk about that. Was yeah. that you? Okay. <laughs> but to uh, to really properly understand Activision's genesis, you need to look back to the early Atari days and kind of the situation at Atari. Um, you know, the the VCS, the twenty six hundred, launched in nineteen seventy seven, and it took a, like a year or so to really take off. But pretty soon, it was a, a big deal, and it was the cool thing to have. You know, buy an Atari system. Um, and Atari was making a ton of money. Warner bought them and it was just, you know, like this money farm. But the the creators were not making much money. They weren't really getting much in the way of, uh, you know, percentages of yeah. the games that they were creating. They were just sort of like workaday drones in this corporate situation, which is not how Atari started. Atari started as like this kind of small company and it was, you know, uh, everyone was really passionate, but then when Warner came in, it really changed the personality of the company. In that digital antiquarian piece you linked us to, which is a great uh, retrospective on Activision yeah, Atari. Yeah, that's at F-I-L-F-R-E dot net, Yeah. Uh, it was explained that the engineers or the designers were making 30K a year, which was probably an okay salary at the time. That's a good salary. That's yeah. close to 100K. Not so. if you're selling hundreds of thousands of games right. that you're responsible for. You should they be getting were, they some. They were making tens of millions of dollars a piece for yeah. the company, so 
you know, in in the grand scheme of things, it was not it was not good. Right, right. And, well, it's like you know, that Ray Kassar memo kind of kicked this off, right? Where he listed off the top selling games and the number of units sold, and the the reason for the memo was more make more games like this. Yeah. But then people realizing, wait, that's my game, and how many millions of units did yes. they sell? They really right. realized what they were worth. <laughs> right. Yeah. From that memo. Yeah. And you know, Atari didn't even want its its you know, its engineers and designers to be known. And that's how you got things like Warren Robinette's Easter yeah, egg and right. right. adventure. Right. Like he had to sneak in his name to get any credit for his work. So that's just not a healthy environment for creative types. Like a decent salary, but, you know, you're basically doing all the heavy lifting for this massive corporation that's making hundreds of millions of dollars. And uh, I think in 1981, I want to say, Atari uh, like was the most – like the, the fastest growing company ever, the most – like the most profitable or something. There's, there's some yes, crazy statistics. Yeah, profit per capita per, yeah, per, something per like person. That. Per like person. It, was, it set all kinds of records. And so obviously, you know, that's, that's not a good combination. Um, like a sort of impersonal corporate – culture at work uh, built around uh, a lot of creativity and invention. So, yeah, I think it's just kind of natural that some of the company's top designers would start to say, well, you know, we could do this on our own terms and do a lot better. And so that's what they did. Uh, Five people uh, left, or was it four? Uh, Several people left to found Activision. It was four Atari engineers and they teamed up with a guy named Jim Levy who basically kind of was the like the the, the you know the suit and tie type who made the business work. But there were four designers, David Crane, Larry Kaplan, mm-hmm. Alan Miller and Bob Whitehead. And if you're familiar at all with video game history, these names should be familiar to you because most of them went on to do great things outside, you know, even beyond Activision or, you know, to create memorable games to kind of sell games on their own name, especially David Crane. Like there were lots of games that were David Crane's whatever. Amazing uh, tennis. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Like, he's a boy in his blob too, correct? Yep. Yes. So. Yeah. yeah. Um, he's – yeah, he's been – he was a he was a formidable presence in video games, and he was very young when he left Atari and became, I think, very wealthy mm-hmm. at a very young age thanks to Pitfall. But you know, I don't think anyone could say it wasn't deserved because Pitfall was one of the high points of the Atari Twenty Six Hundred, and it's a game that still is pretty fun and, and pretty. Um, it's quite a landmark, I think, in game design. Uh, it was very advanced and very sophisticated. And what it did in a tiny amount of uh, storage space is remarkable. So um, so Activision was kind of like the creme de la creme, basically. They were like Atari's top designers branched off to create their own company and create games on their own terms and, you know, actually make a, a solid – more than a solid living from it, but, but you know, earn the, the – the, the royalties that they felt they deserved. And yeah, I, I believe uh, these engineers did approach uh, Ray Kassar at Atari with some sort of royalty uh, proposition, right? It's like, okay, if we have some sort of royalties, just like musicians or, or other artists, uh, then we'll stay and then it was turned down, right? Yes, anybody can make cartridges was mm. was what they were told. Yeah. yeah, you're the same as the person who puts the game in the box. Pretty yes. much, like, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I mean that's so, what he said. I don't agree with him, obviously, yeah. <laughs> but uh, that's what he said. Yeah, right. I mean, at the time they were doing absolutely everything: designing, coding, testing it themselves. Yeah, yeah. I think when, when you look at you know, we talk about um, 
one person being responsible for the game. That was pretty much it. Right? Yeah. I mean, even later in light, in the industry, like 10 years later, I hear Ron Gilbert talking about actually stuffing the Monkey Island boxes himself. Like the guy who designed the game, who wrote the dialogue, who uh, created the game, he's in the in the place making the boxes full of games, essentially. Yeah. So this, this would continue to happen for a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, this, you know, the formation of Activision did have an impact inside of Atari because, you know, the the people responsible for games like E.T. and Pac-Man that maybe are infamous for not being great or whatever for, you know, causing problems for the company, those games sold really well and those guys took home big royalty checks. So eventually Atari did say, oh, wait, maybe we need to not treat our creative types like they're garbage. Right. So anyway, yeah, these these four guys in uh, or five guys in 1979, late 1979, establish Activision. October 1st, 1979. It's really kind of the last big video games event of the 70s. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the 70s was there weren't that many games released throughout the 70s, and especially not that many different games. So many Pong clones, so many Space Invaders clones. Mm-hmm. But you know, there were some very pivotal pivotal moments. You know, from the uh, release of Computer Space or Space War, yeah, Computer Space and Pong and Home Pong, and you know, the Odyssey and uh, the Atari 2600 and a few other notable events, Space Invaders. And then this is kind of like the culmination of that early formative embryonic decade of video games with the the formation of, of Activision and the creation of third-party games publishing. That's pretty much the the beginning of video games as an industry that we see today. Obviously, things would change a lot in the coming years thanks to the, the market crash and you know the Japanese invasion and so forth. Uh, but... But like all the pieces were here at this point, home consoles, arcade games, computers, third parties. Yeah, and the concept of third parties was so foreign. Atari didn't even think someone would make games for their platform or their system. And I was reading those articles and it was funny just to see them dealing with these concepts at the first time for the first time like – you can't you can't be sued for taking knowledge with you somewhere else, you know, because they made sure when we leave to make this, we can't take any equipment, any patents, but we know how to make video games because of our brains, because we've done this before. And I think there was a struggle uh, between Atari and them, like figuring this out. Like, can you patent knowledge of how to make something? Can you patent this? Can you patent that? It was interesting to read. Yeah, it's a little bit weird because I mean, okay, so it caught Atari off guard. Sure, fine, whatever. Like they created a closed system, but. Personal computers at the time were pretty much closed systems. Mm -hmm. Like it was lots of little boutique platforms and the IBM clone had not yet been created. So the idea of, you know, proprietary systems existed, but third parties were still making software for personal computers at that point. So it's not that much of a stretch to think, okay, people do that for computers. Why couldn't they do it for a, you know, computer-like game console uh, but for whatever reason, the thought just never occurred to Atari, and uh, they were very unhappy and immediately or, or very quickly established a lawsuit to try to uh, halt Activision from being able to create and sell games. But like you said, 
they they didn't steal documents with them. It's not like they snuck out lots of Manila file folders. Yeah. Or, it would be like know, if US development gamer, systems or whatever. It would be like if US gamers sued you for writing about video games somewhere else. Like you can't do that. That's all. That's our knowledge. But I, I already know about Donkey Kong. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's it was a it was a gray area, and there was the knowledge issue, and then there was also like the the question of you know we created this hardware, so do we own the rights to interface with it? Do we own all software that comes across? And ultimately, the courts decided no, and it was a it was settled pretty quickly within like a couple of years. And uh, you know, as, as as American legal cases go, especially with large corporations, that's pretty quick. Um, at, at this point, we should probably mention Jim Levy because he basically bankrolled the company uh, during these lawsuits. He had enough money, according to you know the the research we did. Um, that he was able to keep Activision going and and fend off the Atari lawsuit because I think Atari would have been happy not to have won the lawsuit but just to have bankrupted Activision. Yeah. Sued them by, out of yeah. existence basically. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. That's that's a very usual approach. Like mm-hmm. we just want to ruin you. We don't need to win this. We just want to drain you of money and it's fine. We're going to be spiteful. So right. yeah, I've seen these kind of lawsuits all the time. Yeah, I mean that's, very that's a standard business tactic for yeah. large corporations who feel threatened by smaller companies uh, is just – sue them out of existence even if they don't win the bigger company can afford to absorb much more legal costs yeah. but uh, Jim Levy you know provided the backbone for for Activision and allowed the company to survive and not have to worry about the cost of the lawsuit so ultimately Activision prevailed and won the right to do this and that was the beginning of the end of the Atari market because then lots of other third parties sprang into existence and they weren't necessarily the creme de la creme of Atari. They didn't have intimate knowledge of the the techniques of the Atari 2600. They weren't necessarily motivated by quality. So yeah, that that caused all kinds of problems. But you can't blame Activision for that. It's, it's funny not their fault. You mentioned that because as a kid having just a ton of Atari carts, I would notice like this one is a, made of a different material. This one is a different shape. It's like they right. there was no standard there. Uh, they just made as long as it fit into the machine, it was fine. So yeah, I guess the quality control wasn't there. Obviously. Yeah, I, I remember when that third-party flood started to happen, um, just because the number of titles on the shelves started increasing so fast, uh, so quickly that you couldn't keep up. Yeah. Uh, and then things were moving to the bargain bin, you know, a week or two after they showed up on the shelf. So, um, yeah, this – obviously we talk about the video game crash. Yeah, this is, you know, third-party quality – well, even Atari first-party quality uh, not being so great either. So, um, yeah, one other thing on the lawsuit, uh, there was kind of the, the cheeky uh, – Venetian blinds. Uh, That's lawsuit. a great story. Yeah, yes. So, so there's a technique that I guess uh, maybe Alan Miller had come up with the um, for putting eight sprites on on a line rather than the standard six, and he called it the Venetian blinds. Yeah, uh, and that, that showed up in one of uh, Activision's launch games, Checkers, which mm-hmm. had eight you know pieces per line as opposed to six, which was important to make the game authentic. Right, um, and then the Atari lawyers. Uh, talking to Activision is like, oh, you stole uh, this Venetian blinds is one of the, the intellectual property things that they've stolen. And David Crane had a demonstration cartridge that's called Venetian blinds. And literally, it's a window where you move the 
Venetian blinds yeah, up and Yeah, and you can, you can buy that, or you could have. Remember when Xbox 360 yeah, had that virtual arcade? Yeah, yeah, you could buy that for $3. I don't know why it just wasn't free just to mess with, but if you want to pay $3 or whatever, you could play with fake Venetian blinds yeah, yeah. at that resolution. He's like, is this what you're talking about? And obviously that that made Atari's lawyers. It's, it's an amazing excited. graphical demo for the 2600. It really like, is. There's yeah. a right. lot going on there, and the animation of the Venetian blinds is really smooth. You're like, wow, could the 2600 do that? Apparently. Yeah. And that, uh, when uh, it didn't have to worry about game logic or anything like that, the, the system could do some pretty cool-looking stuff. Yeah, and that background when the blinds are all the way open is used in barnstorming. So it's like the, the sunrise. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mentioned that in the, the notes. Huh, interesting. Oh. So um, let's talk about the Atari or the uh, Activision lineup for Atari because these, these kind of early games that they released in 1980, which was, what, six games? Not very many, but, you know, the, the library was still pretty small at that point. Um, I think these were maybe not the most ambitious and amazingly inventive games, but they definitely kind of staked out Activision's intentions. Uh, They were all very much the sort of like the name of this thing that you're doing is the name of the game, uh, which was pretty common at at that point. Um, But they were all done with such a high degree of quality that they they kind of stood out from your your typical Atari release. Right. I mean, they they don't look amazing now, but considering what was available for the 2600 at the time, um, you know, boxing was like, those characters are huge, like dragster, right? Mm-hmm. They take up, it seems like half the screen. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's one of those, uh, one of those kind of like something you would see sort of throughout the, the history of 2d games is all of a sudden someone would come up with a technique for making bigger characters on screen. And even though you look back now and you're like, Oh, those sprites aren't that big. Uh, at the time, it felt like wow, everything's huge. Like the pun- the 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 um, the boxers and Punch Out, you know, like yeah. they just seem so enormous. Even though now you're kind of like, oh yeah, okay, they're like a third of the screen. But at the time, it was like there is this massive <laughs> guy trying to punch me, and I have to punch him in the belly to make his pants fall down. China Warrior on the Turbo Graphics, yes. right? That's, oh yeah, that was the... that was too big, right? Yeah, <laughs> it interfered with the game. Sometimes, <laughs> yeah, it hurt the games. But Activision was good game quality plus impressive visuals, and that was a big deal. Yeah, and uh, all four of the founders had launch titles, mm-hmm. right? Um, Bob Whitehead, Larry Kaplan, Alan Miller, and David Crane. Although you'll see David Crane's name pop up a lot mm. um, in these games, he was quite prolific. So do you guys have any personal experience with these uh, these early games? I, I can't say that I do. Uh, I checked out all of them and watched you know, videos of them. Uh, some of them are really weird. Like Dragster is, uh, is a really bizarre racing game. Mm. It's not really a racing game. It's like a, a head-to-head contest. And, I mean, you're literally lit racing from the left side of the screen to the right side of the screen and, and trying to get there as quickly as possible. And you're like wiggling the joystick, like pressing it to the left to shift gears at just the right time, uh, there's like a little meter that you watch to make sure you don't stall out. Yeah. Uh, but it's it's a it's a strange kind of game. I think you had to get like under six seconds mm. to get a patch yeah. for the 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 whatever I don't, equivalent to the bu- bucket brigade, the dragster demo team. I don't know. Yeah. The I mean, if you think about it, right when. Like the funny car and dragster racing, it's really all about the shifting, right? You don't yeah, steer at all. You just so, go, yeah, yeah. So it's, so it's kind of taking that core element and just making the <coughs> game. I didn't know if that's how you drove a dragster when I was a kid when I saw the game, but it was like those cars <laughs> are racing and they're big. I need to play that game. Um, I think the only ones that I played 
initially were probably boxing and fishing derby. Yeah. Um, I remember seeing skiing, um, but I mean, why would I buy bridge that there's zero yeah. chance that's going to yeah, happen? Yeah, bridge, hey. bridge is probably the least impressive of these games because it's literally just a field, like a white field with numbers and letters on it. Mm. And if you don't understand how to play bridge, um, then what are you doing? Like, there's it's it's impossible to understand. I don't understand bridge, so I just watched demos of this and was like, uh. but I guess if you're like if you were in 1980, the kind of person who would open the comics page and go down to that little bridge corner section and get those strategies, you were like, yes, finally, my time to shine has come. Bridge the video game. Yeah, yeah. I again, fishing derby is great. It's really it looks really good because you have like the sky. You have two people sitting on a pier. Then you have the water. Then you have the sandy the sandy bottom. And uh, the point of the game is to catch as many fish as you can. But there's a shark patrolling the top of the water who will eat your fish if if you don't avoid that. And uh, skiing is just a very, very relaxing skiing game. There's some really nice sound effects in this game. The, that sound effects can go one of two ways on the Atari 2600. The, as a kid, sometimes they scared me. Yeah. But this game was very <laughs> soothing. Sound effects were pretty scary. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, this game just uh, the, like the the whoosh of your skis was very well replicated with. Um, with the Atari 2600, however they made it happen, it, well, it was nice. The thing that I find most impressive about skiing is just how varied the the player sprite is. Yeah, because you're like, you're skiing downhill, but you can turn, and you have like 16 angles that you can turn through. Or maybe maybe it's you can't like aim up, but you know, in that lower arc, it's very smooth. Yeah, you turn, and, uh, and you have a lot of game. different angles. So you know. It, Analog controls wouldn't come into being until the 5200, but um, there definitely was that sense of like you're doing more than just going, you know, in cardinal directions with this game. Which, yeah, you have which a was a really agency, impressive effect. Right? Yeah, it's like closer to skiing where you're probably doing S curves ish, mm. right? But fishing derby was uh, David Crane, which probably shouldn't be surprising because he seemed to have like the greatest technical mastery and also a pretty good artistic sense of what made an interesting looking game. And uh, yeah, the animation of the line, you know, you cast your line down into the water to try to catch fish and it's very smooth. Like it, 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 it moves in these yep. sweeping arcs. Sorry, and that was that was okay. skiing, making the, the swish noises. <laughs> I didn't mean relaxing. I almost fell asleep. I didn't mean for it to play during it's the like podcast. ASMR. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, so yeah. like the the line, and then once you actually catch the fish, they move around a lot. Yeah, so I there's feel, a lot of animation, and then the shark moving around at the top. I feel the line actually going from your rod to the fish and staying attached to it and moving with it seems very advanced for the 2600. Just keeping track of all that information. Yeah, uh, especially all for 1980. Graphics. I mean, the the system was like two, three years old at that point. So people were still kind of getting, you know, a handle on all the the advanced techniques. And I mentioned something about the Venetian blinds, you know, like how it could look great when you didn't have to have game logic. It's important to understand, you know, a basic feature of the Atari 2600 was that like processing had to happen in between uh, the game drawing lines of of uh, of pixels, basically. Racing like, the beam? Yeah. Every, you know, every like 60th of a second – the system would reset how it was drawing the phosphor beam and that's when the game logic happened. So there was kind of like this push and pull between making the video game happen, keeping track of all the stuff on the screen and also creating the graphics. So it was extremely limited and extremely complicated and it took someone who really understood the system inside and out to make a game that could be as sophisticated in terms of play and animation as well as as nice looking as fishing derby, so it really, like it's a it's a very simple game in hindsight, 
and you're not doing much. You're just catching fish, but you know, it's like a head-to-head contest. But that's a lot happening for two players on a single screen uh, for a 1980 Atari 2600 Yeah, two game. players, two lines, lots of fish moving, the shark. It's just a lot is happening in this game for sure. And uh, we didn't really talk too much about boxing, but, you know, that, like I said, it's a sort of strange top-down take on boxing. But that sort of became its own little genre, like its own style, the top-down view. The uh, the lightsaber arena Star Wars game had right. that style. And there were a few other boxing games and hockey games and even fighting games through the years that would try to do that direct, like, overhead, bird's-eye view. I don't think it ever worked very well. But, you know, the, the idea was there and it was a, a different take on, uh, you know, pugilism and uh, combat. Yeah, like Warrior, the Ar- Vector arcade game has that top-down view and you can see the sword swinging yeah, left that's and right. right. So, and, and they played with perspective on that as well where they made it smaller or larger if you're climbing up or down the stairs. That's so. what I call the Bill Lambeer's combat basketball perspective. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, we just, we just talked about that an hour ago. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I would say that, that that style maybe reached its creative apex with one of my personal favorite games, oh, yeah. Brandish, where you it's like the total top-down perspective on a guy going through the dungeon and when you rotate or when you turn, the screen, like the dungeon rotates around you. So it's a... Uh, like your 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 character is sort of the anchor on the screen, and it's very very dis- disorienting when you first play it. But uh, it's a pretty cool take on the dungeon crawler if you give it a chance. Uh, so that's that's a one worth checking out. All right, so we kind of set down the uh, the basic facts um, here for Activision, sort of you know set the stage for everything. I think now we can actually have a little more fun with the show because once you get into 1981, you start to get into some of the more creative games where they really start to break away from you know just kind of like the rudimentary here's a video game experiences and more like hey let's do something different, let's create worlds, let's create ideas, uh, and so you know starting with 1981. You, you really start to get, I think, the games that people associate most with Activision, you know, the more creative ones, the ones that really set a new standard for Atari 2600 software. Um, I mean, the, the biggest one probably in 1981 would be Kaboom by Larry Kaplan, um, which is kind of like a backwards take on Space Invaders or... Uh, breakout. It's 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 kind of in that same mold of like you're moving a thing back and forth at the bottom of the screen, but you know um, what you're actually doing is a little bit different. So there's like the Mad Bomber who hangs out at the top of the screen, kind of looks like the Hamburglar, <laughs> and you know he drops bombs and you have buckets and you're trying to catch the bombs as they fall in the buckets. And every time you miss, then you lose a bucket. And when you run out of buckets, the game's over. Um, but it's you know a very simple concept for the game. But it gets really quick, really fast, and very challenging. And that that was a paddle controller game, right? Yeah, yeah. It used the uh, that paddle. explains everything. I tried to play this on a collection or something. I'm like, this is too hard. Yeah, but I didn't realize it was a paddle game. That makes so much sense That's now. That's why yeah. Taito made an Arkanoid controller, yeah, right? Yeah, you could play it with a, the joystick. I used to play it with the joystick on the Atari, and it was really difficult. <laughs> yeah, especially those later levels. I mean, basically, it's dropping bombs in a. You know, Mad Bomber's dropping in a zigzag pattern. Uh, so you yeah. basically have to go back and yeah. forth so fast that I don't 
know if you can play it with a joystick. I really yeah, doubt it. I watched a video of um, like a world record attempt. Yeah. And if you go past like the five minute mark, out of this like hour long video, it's just like, uh, how can you <laughs> keep up with this? Yeah. Well, I think there's some like pattern memorization. Uh, it right? could be. Yeah, it could it's be. Sort of like a muscle memory. It's like, mm. okay, here's the one where he's going to make like an S, and then you know, left, right, left, right, mm. whatever. But yeah, I mean, this was um, this had kind of all the hallmarks of a video game classic of that era because one, a very simple concept, uh, very easy to pick up and play, uh, a distinct control style. Um, a really, really steadily ramping up difficulty level, uh, so it becomes really difficult to master and get a high score. And also, there's a character. You've got the Mad Bomber, so it's like all the all the little pieces that you need to have a successful video game in 1981. And there you go. So I would I would definitely say Kaboom is the best known of Activision's 1981 games. It was not one that I ever got to play as a kid, but I still knew what Kaboom was. Which you know, you know, Donkey Kong, Pac-Man, Frogger, Cubert, like he had those games. But for this one, a, a game specifically made for the Atari Twenty Six Hundred by a third party, uh, to for whatever reason stick in my memory. That 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 to me says like they did a good job with this and and kind of stood out from the crowd. I don't know. Do you guys have any memories of this game, or is that just something unique to me? I didn't encounter this. It's just, it's weird that, um, again, I was born in 82 and I encountered all of these games far after they were relevant. So what I actually found had nothing to do with how well it did or the quality. I just, I encountered random Activision games and that was not one of them, but it's one I did play later. And I was like, why is this so hard? But then I just learned now there's a reason why. So, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it was the, uh, actually the only Activision patch I got. Um, So we we kind of alluded to it earlier for. Oh yeah, can you talk about that? Yeah, uh, they had a, a, Activision, you could write into them, and they basically set different scores. Like, for instance, you mentioned Dragster getting under six seconds. Bucket Brigade uh, for Kaboom was scoring over 3,000 points, and each game had these different levels. In fact, Decathlon, I think, had bronze, silver, and gold medals. So you would take a photograph of your screen and mail it into Activision, and then they would send back um, a patch. Uh, you know, it's like... Save the Chickens was the the freeway one mm-hmm. and, and things like that. So they um, they'd send you a letter uh, and a patch, uh, sort of signifying that you had accomplished this. And and in their Activision's uh, newsletter, they on the side they tell you how to take a picture of your television screen. Right? They're like, don't use a flash if you're using like a flash cube. <laughs> you know, uh, oh, use a burnt out one. Yeah. So it's really funny to to listen to those. It's like if you have a Polaroid, like this is how you should do it. Hold still. Um, so yeah, I just I sent in a Polaroid of my screen and then I got my patch and that's the only one I ever did it with. I'm not sure why I didn't do more. Maybe I just wasn't as good at games <laughs> except for Kaboom. So yeah, Kaboom is um, probably one of my, well, it's definitely one of my favorite Activision games. So yeah, you mentioned Freeway, which was basically their take on Frogger, David Crane's take on Frogger, which um, is not that exciting uh, a game in in artistic terms. Um, it's basically, you know, like, why did the chicken cross the road? You take that joke and turn it into a Frogger clone, and you've got Freeway. But technically, it's impressive because there's, what, like 10 lanes of traffic on the freeway? And there's cars moving, multiple cars moving along each lane at different speeds. And it's really, really challenging um, just to get the chicken from the bottom of the screen to the top of the screen moving through those lanes. And it doesn't have, like, the moving scenery, you know, where you have to jump on logs and stuff like uh 
like Frogger did, but just dodging all those cars is pretty tough. Yeah, yeah, it looks great. Uh, one last thing on the, on the patches, I, I had to look this up. The I remember getting a letter uh, along with the patch congratulating me, and I guess it was uh, Jan Marcella who was basically their kind of head of customer. She did like the Activision's magazine as well. But if you um, got the high score on Pitfall, the letter came from Pitfall Harry. Like, oh wow! Sort of the first person <laughs> like writing to you, it's like congratulations, Explorer, or something like that. That's, That's really awesome. cute. Um, probably the most visually impressive game of 1981 was Laser Blast, which is a pretty simplistic game. Uh, you probably wouldn't be surprised to learn that it was developed by David Crane. He was like the guy who made everything look cool and pretty. Um, and he this game did the bombs in Kaboom as well. Oh, did he? Yeah. Okay. Because <laughs> there could there could be a lot of those bombs on the screen at a time. Yeah. Like in the higher levels, so that that kind of makes sense. But Laser Blast, um, basically, you have a UFO. It's kind of a reverse Space Invaders almost or Missile Command. Um, you have a UFO and it moves along the top of the screen and you can move back and forth, but basically you go from scenario to scenario and there will be three tanks at the on the ground and you have to either stand above them or at a 45-degree angle and fire a laser blast at them to destroy them. And sometimes the tanks raise their own you know cannons at you and will fire back, so that makes it extremely difficult. Um, but the uh, like the visual effect on the laser beam is really, really impressive because it kind of does that almost like, you know, the Akira effect where there's like this kind of um, like a dim laser for just one frame and then the laser, you know, shines brightly and then kind of fades away a little. Like Defender did that a little bit with kind of like the pixel uh, decay on, on some of the beams that you fire. But it's like a really subtle effect, but it really... Like it's very fast and really adds a lot to this extremely simple game. It just – it's such a cool like sci-fi animation effect. Um, I, I, I don't know. It's just a sign of the the extra love and care that Crane put into his games I mm-hmm. think. Uh, and it, like I said, it's it's very simple and very challenging but uh, just, you know – the the kind of speed of it and the uh, the gracefulness of the graphics uh, make it a really fun and cool game. Uh, you know, probably the most influential game of 1981 would be Tennis, which was developed by Alan Miller. And this was a big step forward in tennis games because up until that point, you know, Atari had published a tennis game uh, that I think was just called like Tennis also. Um, but isn't Pong Tennis of the Future? Why would yeah, you need right? to make a tennis game? Come on. <laughs> so so uh, to this point, tennis games either were like the side-on view like Pong or they had like a very bird's-eye top-down view and were kind of loose and, and a little awkward. Uh, tennis did two really – Alan Miller's tennis did two very important things. First, it tilted the perspective on the field or the court. So the forecourt is larger than the backcourt. And you have two characters, you know, one in each court. Um, you know, there's like the perspective on, on the sidelines. Um, and so that kind of creates a, a sense of depth. Uh, you know, the field is, or the, the, the net is in the middle uh, and the other the other important thing is that the ball casts a shadow, which is like a very simple thing, but no one had done that before. And it makes a huge difference because, you know, tennis is about aiming the ball and hitting it into the right places, not hitting it outside the boundaries. And without that shadow, it's really hard to tell exactly what you're doing. So before this, tennis was kind of like a kind of like flailing at the sport, but it wasn't really more advanced than pong. 
But with the advent of the shadow and the perspective, then all of a sudden it became like a more immersive, more convincing, more realistic take on tennis. And that would be very influential in later tennis games like – I can't remember what it's called but the one Data East made in like 1983 um, and then Nintendo's tennis for Famicom in 1984. Uh, Like those basically took this concept and ran with it. Uh, But without those – without this game, I don't know if those ever would have happened. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, if you look at NES tennis versus this, and it's basically yeah, this, there's a lot of uh, influence there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then a few other games, Stampede by Bob Whitehead, which is kind of like a scrolling shooter, side a side scrolling shooter, except instead of shooting things, you're roping little doggies. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically, sending out your lasso straight ahead of your your ste- uh, your your horse and catching a steer and then you pull it back and it disappears. I guess you put it into your satchel or something, <laughs> your inventory. Um, ice hockey, which is a two-on-two hockey game, and it has, as is kind of par for um, for Activision, really nice animation. Um, that was also by Alan Miller. I guess he was kind of the sports guy. Um, so that was it for 1981, but that's, you know, six games, all of which are more impressive and... Uh, you know, deeper, more substantial than the 1980 games. Uh, so then we get into 1982, and this is, you know, where things get really great because you have Pitfall, you have River Raid, you have Mega Mania, you have Chopper Command, Barnstorming, and Grand Prix, like all of these, another six games, but they're all just all-time classics, some of the greats of the Atari 2600. I have one to add to that, but it's okay. only because I played it. It's, uh, Act- it's, it's Activision, it's Spider Fighter, 1982, uh, Larry Miller, I think, made it. It is basically Activision's version of Galaxian. It's just a shooter where you're stuck to the ground. Things are swooping in at you, but there's like a lot of different enemies. It's very colorful. Uh, some things that scared me a lot as a kid, but um, it's very creative. I like it. I don't know if it's a notable Activision game, but it's one that I played a lot, and it's an 82 release. How, how does that compare to Mega Mania? Because Mega Mania is also kind of like a Galaxian Space Invaders game. I'll have to look up a video on my phone. Uh, so Mega Mania... Um, you have, you know, basically like a Klingon bird of prey at the bottom of the screen, and you're shooting up, um, and then you have enemy formations above, and you know, like in Space Invaders, they move across the screen, but instead of moving to the side of the screen and then lowering one level and then moving back in the other direction, they wrap, and oh. so they kind of move at a diagonal, you know, like an angle, and so they're constantly getting closer to the ground, <laughs> but you can't sort of box them in the way you do in Space Invaders, so it's it's a lot more challenging. And also the the enemy patterns are a lot more varied. Spider Fighter is a bit different. It's a bit more colorful. But um, I think there are some similar things in common with Mega Mania now that I'm looking at a video of it. But uh, Spider Fighter is uh, just really just a lot of things swooping down at you and firing projectiles at you. It's I think it's based off that Galaxian, uh, the Galaxian mold or the Galaxian formula. But uh, it seems a little more fast-paced to me. <coughs> yeah. Yeah, Mega Mania was um, Activision's version of Astro Blaster, basically. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah, so something else that's kind of happening alongside, obviously, the years creeping up is the number of employees working at Activision, mm-hmm. right? So now we're starting to see games from designers that were not the original four, right? I think, uh, like you're saying... Steve uh, Cartwright. Steve Cartwright, right, and Carol Shaw with mm-hmm. River Raid, so... Yeah, and another another important thing to consider is, one, we're getting close to the Atari crash, like right. that happened at the end of 1982, but... You know, kind of hand in hand with that, 1982 is also when you're starting to see third party games from other third parties. And the quality of these Activision games is really important because it really sets Activision's work apart from 
you know, a dozen totally crappy companies whose names I can't even think of. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, there there is this kind of like seal of quality. You've got the Activision rainbow on there. You know it's going to be good. Who knows about this other game? Like uh, apparently it's pornographic. What's going on there? I don't understand. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, that only – I think that only took them so far because – when you have people shoveling out games at much lower prices than Activision and much lower quality, you can't necessarily judge quality just by looking at the package, looking at the name, looking at the box. Yeah, you you have to kind of you know say, well, here's a game. I, I like the rainbow on it, but it's forty bucks. What about this other one that's only fifteen? Maybe I should get the fifteen dollar game. Yeah. And then it's terrible, and you hate video games forever in the end. <laughs> well, there's no reviews. Right. I mean, maybe something in the newspaper or a magazine, but nothing to where now if I want to know what a game is like, I can just look it up. Um, and so, yeah, you had a lot of third parties kind of dumping things onto the market. Um, and while Activision quality was there, you know, there there's that decision of do I spend $30 on an Activision game or I can buy 15 $2 games. Right. Um, right. So th- there's just like this sort of quantity uh, over quality that was very difficult to, to overcome, especially at this time, because, you know, video games are still relatively new. Right. And, you know, the answer is th- to buy the more expensive game, not the two $15 games. But it's hard to necessarily convince people of that, which is why you see things like blowback against Super Mario Run. Like it's a premium priced app, but you know I want my free apps, so screw this game. <laughs> right. It's 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 always been the push and pull of of the video games industry, I think, or really probably any any industry. Americans are a bunch of cheapskates. That's that's basically what it boils <laughs> down to. You really are. Yeah, I had I think more awareness about what was coming out for the Activision because of Activision's mag, uh, newsletter. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when I got that patch, I basically effectively signed up for the newsletter as well, and. I think they didn't send out many issues, but they would always say, you know, here's this hot new game, here's the designer, and here's maybe some things that they're, you know, we're working on. So there was at least a, well, maybe I can't afford it. I'm still going to buy cheap games because I'm still a kid, Mm. but um, at least I know what's coming from Activision. Mm. Yeah, we were really lucky in the UK. I mean, Computer and Video Games magazine launched in 1981, and, and, you know, that really did cover all of the the main cartridges that came out at the time. So even though I didn't have a 2600 at the time, I knew all about Pitfall because, you know, they'd they'd reviewed it and and, and, had gone on and on about how amazing it was, and I just, you know, really wanted to play it. So we had a pretty good... You know, combination of the sort of the the playground jungle drums and and a mag, you know, just a couple of magazines that, that were out at the time that people were buying, and so there was a pretty good awareness of what was good and what was bad, and I think part of that sort of helped maybe a little bit to the the market didn't crash in the UK. Basically, it's a it's a very different history out there. Yeah, I'm trying to think about. I mean, everybody knew about Pitfall when Pitfall came out. Um, or you know, within probably the first six months to mm-hmm. one year, which is a, a short time period at, at this time. Um, and I'm kind of wondering. I think I mean I probably heard about it on the playground, and then everybody just it was sort of the must-have game for the 2600. I mean, I remember seeing store kiosks with it. This was before you saw a lot of store kiosks, but I remember like going to a grocery store. And they just had like sort of their video game section, and they just had a an Atari twenty six hundred set up and showing off Pitfall. And you know, I would go places and see 
see Pitfall being shown off. Like it was the game that you showed off to sell people 2600s because it was that that impressive. It was like, you know, a few years later you had Super Mario Brothers to sell people NESs. Um, it was just such a huge leap in terms of game design and in terms of presentation over anything that had come before that, uh, you know, it was like, wow, I can't believe I can do this on my my home television. That's crazy. Hmm. You know, the novelty of Pong had worn off a long time before that. So people had gotten used to doing stuff with computer games on their TVs, but nothing quite like this. So yeah, Pitfall... Uh, let's let's talk about Pitfall, actually. Um, Jazz, you've been pretty quiet, but I'm sure you're familiar with Pitfall. Pitfall. Yeah, so, absolutely. You want to talk about like <clears throat> what made this game so amazing and impressive? Yeah, I I didn't play it for a while, and the, the first time I actually encountered it was I think it was uh, it must have been on the it wasn't on the 2600. That's for sure. It was probably on the the Commodore 64, the uh, or the Atari computer, um, and it it was just it was a proper adventure. You know, it, it, it was flick screen as far as I recall. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, each screen had its own set of challenges. You le- leapt over crocodiles and had to sort of swing on vines. And so it had a variety uh, and a progression that was just very unusual at the time. Um, it had 256 screens, I think. Was it 128 or 256? Mm-hmm. I think it was 256. I believe so. I yeah. can't remember. But yeah, I mean, it, it it went on and on, and 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 it was just a just a a sort of a fabulous experience, a, a, the sort of the Tomb Raider of its day, if you will. Mm. Well, it was more like the Indiana Jones of its yes, day. Yes, I mean, absolutely. Indiana Jones was Raiders of the Lost Ark was huge in 1981. So coming a year later, I mean, I think the influence was pretty obvious. Um, with maybe a little bit of Roger Moore jumping on crocodile heads and live and let die in uh, there. Never thought <laughs> uh, of that. Yeah, <laughs> but. Um, yeah, like swinging on vines, jumping over scorpions, collecting treasures. And then there was the um, the sort of secret element of the game where the bottoms, the bottom half of the screen, like it was a tiered game. There was the overground and the underground. And the underground screens connected in a different way. It was like it kind of let you warp forward several screens every time you flick from one screen to another. And, you know, there were different pathways that would allow you to get underground there were brick walls that would block your progress underground. So you had to kind of learn, even though it was, you know, like a linear screen, one screen to another that infinitely looped, um, it still became a labyrinth because the question was, how can you navigate the space and get around the, the barriers, get through the, you know, the pits and climb the ladders and so forth and collect all the treasures within 20 minutes? Right. I think one of the things I remember about Pitfall that was, mind-blowing at the time, and it sounds ridiculous now, is the fact that I could run the other direction. Oh, yeah, that's right? true. Um, so it's Even like, Mario didn't let you do that. Right, yeah. It's like, wait, I can go the other way. Uh, I can go through this backwards, basically. So that, that it's kind of one of those things that now, you know, you think about it, yeah, of course, you, know, you should be able to explore, but at the time, everything was like, move to the right. Mm-hmm. And there, there was an element of needing to backtrack to be able to get, you know, the uh, the treasures efficiently and get past all the barriers and everything. And it's the kind of game where you can sit down and through meticulous study and replay, figure out what is the optimal route through this game. And it's it's one that I'm sure someone has mapped that out and put it on the internet. But at the time, like that's that's challenging. That that is a test in itself. And it wasn't necessarily a. Um, a challenge like a score challenge like Pac-Man or a shoot 'em up or something where you're just trying to survive as long as possible. 
it was really about like how efficiently could you explore, how well could you learn this jungle and remember where you need to go while also navigating the hazards. So it, it was challenging you on multiple levels, which action games at the time didn't really do. Yeah, I mean, most of the time to figure out the like end objective was to read the manual. Uh, and this one, I mean, I, when I played Pitfall, I didn't know really there was an end. I was just thinking I need to get all the treasure and, and <laughs> right. make it through the obstacles, right? Yeah, and the the fact that it had an ending is, in fact, like that, that video games didn't really do that too often. You know, action games didn't. It was just on Atari. It was keep shooting stuff until you, you know, it gets so fast you can't survive. Right. Some of the other games here uh, for 82, Barnstorming, um, that's like basically, it's not a runner because you're not running, but I mean, it, its design is basically Flappy Bird. You're either going <laughs> high or low. You, you're trying to fly through barns, so you have to lower your plane to fly like at a low level through the barns, and then there will be obstacles like windmills and stuff and birds up high, so you have to constantly alter your height in order to advance as far as you can. I remember seeing this, uh, someone trying to set the high score on at a classic gaming expo uh, on barnstorming. And one of the funny things they did to, to practice was they stuck pieces of tape on the screen to the different heights uh, <laughs> of, you know, the windmill and everything else. So it was sort of like a practice exactly how much you need to move even if, you, you know, that obstacle isn't isn't there. It has that nice Atari 2600 sunset where it's just like three colors in the background, but it still added a lot of uh, atmosphere to a system you didn't see many touches like that on. It's the Venetian blind sunset. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, and Chopper Command also had that sunset uh, or a sunset similar to that. Chopper Command's kind of like a... Defender yeah, Parsec style game. I remember game. playing that. I, yeah, I'm sure you're a big fan of that one. Loved, actually, loved that. Yeah, for, as a, as home consoles go, it was <clears> it was miles better than the official Defender, and uh, didn't play it too long. But um, uh, I, d- I just remember it being pretty tough. But but it had a radar, you know, which was very sophisticated for its time, and you know, different different things to shoot at. So it was, it was a good, good good little game. Mm-hmm. Um, and let's see what else. Grand Prix, another David Crane game. Um, not really that impressive looking, but it's a, it's an interesting take on racing. It's again top down, kind of like boxing, and you're moving from left to right. It's not like Dragster. Uh, you're actually, you know, the screen scrolls, and so you're constantly moving forward. But there are tons of cars. The sprites are actually pretty big, and you're basically moving from lane to lane, trying to avoid the cars. And the longer you avoid cars the faster you go, but as soon as you hit another car, you don't explode, but you lose your momentum. So the trick is to move and avoid cars for as long as possible to get as far as possible and earn extra points. I had this, and there's the sound of the cars crashing is great. I don't know how they did it, but it's a really great car crash sound. Again, Activision is really, uh, they really knew how to work that hardware in a way that no one could. And the fact that uh, it's it can convincingly uh, display speed, which is something I don't think Atari 2600 games were necessarily good at. Yeah. But it really made you give you that sense of speed with like cars kind of just like slowly pulling by you and like you're slowly passing them while the the side objects are just whizzing by you. I feel like it really gives a convincing mm-hmm. sense of speed. Mm-hmm. And then finally, the other kind of big impressive game for 1982 was River Raid. 
which is notable because it was developed by a woman, which it wasn't really that common back then. Oh. You know, you had uh, what's her name, Donna Bailey, yeah. who developed uh, Centipede. designed Centipede around the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Carol Shaw uh, designed River Raid, and interestingly, it's a shooter kind of like Centipede. Um, people, you know, have their stereotypes about women in video games, <laughs> but this is a this is a blistering action game, and it's actually pretty complicated. There's a lot happening. Um, yeah, the fuel thing. Yeah. yeah. So uh, you know, yeah, I fly think... a plane up the screen, collect fuel to stay alive, basically stay aloft and 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 shoot things. But what I think, what the thing that really stood out for it was the fact that it had a, a procedurally generated landscape, mm-hmm. which kind of you know kept rather than having it all bitmaps, it was very unusual in having that 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 procedural generation, which which right. Kept so the, the levels changed high. every yeah. time. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, um, the uh, the fuel concept was something that was kind of a showing up in games around this time. You had a, a Konami Scramble yeah. in 1981 where you had to like bomb fuel tanks, and you had Zaxxon yeah. in 1982 where you had to shoot out fuel tanks. This one, you don't shoot them, you just pass over them, which makes a little more sense uh, in terms of like logistics. But <laughs> basically, it's a top-down shooter uh, scrolling vertically up the screen, and as it's called River Raid, you're basically within a channel and the channel, you know, narrows and uh, sometimes there will be like bars in the middle of the uh, – uh, in the middle of the river. So you have to avoid hitting land. Uh, but you're in a, like a plane and you're blowing up tanks – or not tanks but boats and other planes uh, that, you know, initially are just static and sitting still. But as you advance further in, they start to move around and then they start to shoot back. And you have to pass over these fuel depots to uh, refuel your 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 jet, and just passing over it won't completely refill you. So you, it's kind of like the longer you linger over a fuel spot, the uh, the more fuel you'll get. So you have to adjust your speed while not making yourself too vulnerable. Uh, there are gates that appear in the river that you have to blow up in advance. So there's a lot happening. Um, it's a really really involved game and very fast paced for a 2600 game. And has been considered like you know one of the greats, and definitely very in, uh, influential in terms of uh, shooter design. Yeah, I think what's interesting is you know at this time Activision was running a lot of ads with its creators, sort of starring in the ad. And River Raids does have Carol Shaw, I think, on a racing bike. Um, I'm saying like this is Carol Shaw's game, so. I don't know if that's a precedent um, hmm. at all. Yeah, they were doing like the Rockstar designer thing back like before, before it was EA. cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. really. Yeah. The um, pre-EA days. Yeah, like yeah. Barnstorming had uh, Steve Cartwright like all dressed, you know, like the Red Baron or whatever on a biplane. So definitely like showing off, hey, our designers make cool games and they are cool. You should buy <laughs> cool games by cool people. Yes. Yeah, River Raid uh... – was the first game to be banned by for minors in West Germany by the wonderfully sounding <laughs> Federal oh. Department of Writing Harmful to Young Persons. Wow. <laughs> Why is that? Violent. Because you're shooting stuff? You're shooting stuff. Right? Okay. Germany, Germany took a while to uh, be okay with violent video games. Especially oh, yeah. ones involving airplanes dropping bombs or uh, shooting yeah, okay. at things yeah. on the ground. Mm-hmm. Too soon. Too yes. soon. So then we get to 1983, which uh, everything in the games industry kind of fizzles out about this point, and that kind of is Activision to a certain degree too. Um, this is where they start to encounter some troubles, and also where they start to release some games where you're kind of like, eh, like Space Shuttle. Steve Kitchen tried to do a lot with Space Shuttle, but uh, 
did I put Steve Kitchen? I think Gary Kitchen, sorry. Um, it's it's like really ambitious. You're oh no, in... it is Steve Kitchen. It's oh, is Gary's it? brother. Oh, his brother. Okay, yeah. okay. Um, so you're like the the view is the cockpit windowed view of the space shuttle, and you have to like take it through launch and then up into orbit, and you can like watch the curvature of the Earth beneath you, and you have to dock with things, deploy things. It's it's really complicated. It's a lot to do with a single joystick and a button, um, and it seems really abstract. Have you guys ever played this? I mean, I've seen the box. I I owned it when I was collecting Atari twenty six hundred games, but I don't think I've actually ever. Played I've never it. played it. No. Yeah. Yeah, I played played the Atari version. I think it was. Was it on Atari? Yes, it was on Atari. Um, vague, vaguely remember it taking twenty minutes to load and and about three minutes for me to start <laughs> actually playing it because Yikes. it just was just a just a series of screens that didn't seem to make any sense and I didn't have a, an instruction manual with it yeah it's so. got meters and stuff and you're like, yeah. if you don't have the instructions then yeah. what is it even doing it's, and, it's and no one interpretive flight simulation basically yeah. which is just not what you wanted to play not at all not when you had river raid and things like that right yeah so it, this was also the year that Activision started to license games from other like arcade games so they started taking uh, Sega games you had Enduro uh, oh, which that was, was a Sega game. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. right. And that was a that was a racing game, kind of like a <clears throat> you know proto outrun pole position type game. It had I, th- I think Atari Twenty Six Hundred had Night Driver, which had sort of the same like you know you're you're kind of behind the car looking forward into the road. That was a that was a tricky thing for the Atari Twenty Six Hundred to do. And I will say that um, Larry Miller programmed this version. And it, you know, within the limitations of the 2600, it looks really impressive. Uh, you know, Night Driver kind of simulated that road effect by making everything black and giving you very little visual information. So it kind of, you know, relied on you filling in the blanks a lot to, to create the sense of driving at night. Whereas this game actually does have, you know, like a, a, a sort of scrolling line that you know constantly moves around and shifts to show the direction of the road and it has kind of a gradient effect on it so it fades away as it gets further into the distance so that's um it's pretty impressive it's really cool i mean all these all these effects it has like uh, it goes from day to night there's weather like snow uh, the sun, again that sunset appears it is very technically advanced for what the atari mm-hmm. could do i mean it's like Every racing game where there's a horizon and things are convincingly moving towards it, right? Uh, Wait, you would not expect that on the 2600. Yeah, and this is what 83. So yeah, 82, 83. you had a pole position come out in the arcades, right? Right. And people are have an expectation of what a driving game should be after yeah, that. Yeah, I don't know what pole position looked like on 2600, or even if it came out on 2600. I'm sure it did. It was a 5200 oh, game. Okay, I, I could be totally wrong on that. I apologize. That is okay. Yeah. Um, another licensed game, Keystone Capers. Wasn't that licensed? Wasn't that an arcade game? Or maybe it was an original game. Pretty sure it was an original game. Okay. Yeah. So that was kind of like, uh, you would see this kind of game in like Bonanza Brothers or something. <laughs> uh, I, I'm, Jazz, I'm sure you saw a ton of games similar to Keystone Capers on, you know, the British microcomputers that, that sort of like you're in, um, sort of like a, a small space where you can explore sort of screen by screen. There's a there's a radar at the bottom. Uh, it's like a building and it has multiple levels and you're moving up and down between levels as you run and try to collect treasures and avoid policemen. Um, 
I don't know. It kind of it kind of has that same vibe as like a Jet Set Willy or something. Oh, okay. Yeah, I was, I was just trying to make the connection there. But yes, sort of Manic Miner, Jet Set Willy, yeah. 2049 or that right, kind of exactly. thing. Like it, it definitely has that kind of vibe. But this is, I guess, you know, the American take on that concept. Yeah. Oddly enough, what I remember most about Keystone Capers is the television ad mm-hmm. uh, that ran. And it's, you know, cops chasing the, the robbers around and – I, I, maybe it was also used in the print ads, but I, I still remember seeing that that TV ad um, and probably pulled it up on YouTube. I'm trying to think. Isn't that the box art that has a dude who looks like Gallagher on it? Keystone Capers? Yeah, we just talked uh, about Gallagher in the last episode we, we recorded. We did. Try to figure out why. <laughs> <laughs> because we hate ourselves. Laser disc games? Yes. Uh, yes, yes right. good call. All right. Um, okay, no, I'm thinking of some other game. Never mind, I blew it. My bad. I bet Gallagher played it at some point in his life. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> Uh, what you're missing on this list again? This is not a standout Activision game. It's a really, it's a really good game. I think I mentioned it earlier. It's called Crackpots. Mm-hmm. Uh, you play a person at the top of the screen, and there, are, there are like six flower pots, and there are spiders going up towards windows, and they're zigging and zagging. And if you drop a flower pot, it'll take a few seconds for it to recharge and pop back up. So if, if you don't kill enough spiders in every wave, at the end of the wave, a termite will come across the screen and eat through a level of the building. The building will fall down a level. It's a very interesting like uh, graphical uh, effect for an Atari game. And again, that sunset is behind you, and there's like a cityscape and a sunset. It's very, it's a very nice looking Atari game, and it is an '83 game. This is also the second game you brought up with spiders. Spider Fighter and Crackpots, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You had a, interesting. A trend as a kid. My mom just got me spider based games for some reason. <laughs> I don't know why. Do you have Spider Man on 2600? Uh, you know what? No, I never no. played it. Never played it on in cartridge form, at least. The missing spider game. Up. We've been through Activision's golden age, the golden age of Atari 2600. But in 1983, everything went to hell, and the Atari 2600 became not a place where you could make money. And you know, Activision continued to make 2600 games, but they also had to diversify and began to look to computers. And they still made good games there, but there is kind of this sense that as they move away from sort of the the incubator where their business got started that something essential was lost and um, the company would have a lot of troubles in the, the following years. You know, the, the PC market is where people began to focus, but it would take a while for PCs to become as big and as popular as the 2600 was in its prime. And, you know, there was more competition on PC Besides games, there were also productivity apps and things like that. And it was a more open architecture. And there were also a lot of PCs to worry about. You couldn't just make, you know, like games for PC. There were, oh God, there was Apple, there was Atari, there were the various like, uh, you know, uh, Tandy and VIC-20 and Commodore 64 and just like a dozen platforms that they had to worry about. And I, even though some of them had similar architecture, they each still required you know, special consideration. I also think the PC, the many versions of that, was not as populist as a platform as the Atari mm-hmm. because um, I, I believe it was the mid-'90s when it became like, oh, it's a family thing. Any family could buy a PC. But in the 80s, it was like, oh, this luxury. This, guy, this guy's got a computer. Yeah, I right? mean you had like the, the – 
TRS-80 and the Commodore 64 that were really priced affordably, and yeah. that's how they competed. The TI-99-4A, although I don't think Activision made anything for the TI because it was dead by that point. But I do look at prices of computers in the 80s, and I think I would not pay that much for a computer now with uh, 2017 money in some cases. Yeah. I mean, I, we had a PC because my father did economic forecasting, but it was that was the only reason. Yeah, right? yeah. If, if it was for everybody your job, else, really. yeah, everyone else was like, "Wow, you have a computer in your house? That's crazy." Yeah, all the kids I knew that had computers. It was like my dad uses it for work, but I can also sneak games onto it. So right. it wasn't like we bought this for multimedia and fun and games. It's like, no, this I got this for the office, and I have to do work on it. So, right. Yeah. Yeah, it's so funny. In the UK, it was completely the opposite. Oh, yeah, it, yeah, it, for it, sure. It, yeah, spectrum. Con- consoles were luxury items. Uh-huh. So, you know, you only play games. Well, that's rubbish. What you really need <laughs> is a computer yeah. that you can, you know, justify buying, you know, paying quite a lot of money for it. But it actually also, it plays games, but it does other things. Not yeah. that anybody... Recipes and checkbooks. Yes. Yes. those <laughs> other things. The kids Calendars. ended up playing games on them all the time. But we had Bill Gates here, not Sir Clive. So... Pricing was not as much of a consideration. Like, uh, you know, UK in the UK, the microcomputers really competed on price and accessibility, yeah. and that's not something that was as big a deal here. Like, the uh, the TI-99 4A and the Commodore 64 were kind of the, the leaders in that regard, and uh, those were, you know, kind of more expensive. Like, the C64 was a more expensive system, uh, relatively speaking, in, in the UK, wasn't it? Like, compared to the, the Sinclair Spectrum or something. Yeah, I mean, it definitely started off slowly. The, the computer launched in 82 and sort of 83 and 84. Sales were fairly slow, but by the time 85 rolled around, it was, you know, the sales really picked up at right. that point. But it took a while. It, it did. It, it I, did I'm sure that had to do with prices momentum. coming down yes, and, absolutely. and new models and everything. Yeah. So anyway, um, there were quite a few original games that Activision created. They also published a lot of games by other computer companies. Uh, they published a lot of Lucasfilm games. Um, That's correct, before yeah. they were a publisher. Yeah. Right. right. Ballblazer. Um, Fractalus. Res- Rescue on Fractalus. Um, they published some pretty well-known uh, adventure games, like A Mind Forever Voyaging and The Eidolon, uh, Murder on the mm. Mississippi. Like there was some great stuff that Activision put out. Uh, yeah, there's a the... game called Hacker as well, which was mm-hmm. a really innovative sort of adventure game. Yes, little computer people, which was yes. the Sims many Basically, many yeah. years before the Sims yeah. were invented. That was another David Crane game. Oh yeah, enough. yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, disk disk drive based. Um, yeah, she put your your disk into your computer into the disk drive, and it would randomly generate a a unique little computer person and a house. And then you could type to your little computer person and get him to do things, and and he'd interact with you. I thought it was absolutely fantastic at the time. Of just a really innovative, you know, very unusual concept. The idea of this little dude that lives inside your computer. Um, they even made a cassette version of it, which didn't work very well. <laughs> but um, it, but such was its popularity that, uh, particularly in the UK, and the demand for it that that they they. They made this disc-only game into a cassette version, mm. so they could sell it in Europe, and and it did very well. Well, Square Enix, or I guess SquareSoft, uh, ported it to Famicom Disk System in Japan under the name Appletown Monogatari. So <laughs> all the little uh, rabbits, <laughs> all the rabbit characters, it's were like the a Appletown? cat. Isn't it, I okay, I thought those were just like a bunch of. I think I think we had the. I dolls think you're or thinking something. of Onyanko Town. Onyanko Town. Yeah. Oh, is that something different? It or is. okay, is that a little computer people port or? No, it's like it's a oh. game about cats in a town. 
That Appleton, I just remember my sister might have had dolls based on it, where they're just like these these fuzzy bunny dolls. But no, I don't know, think so. Weird. Okay. I don't, I don't. I don't think it ever imported back into the U.S. My memory failed me. I thought it did. <laughs> Appletown. God. Okay. Um, are you thinking like Richard scary stuff? Like no, scary town or I, crazy I town? Or later, finding out I was Japanese. Busy town. That's it. Um, someone tell me what I'm thinking of. I don't know. I will Please give help you us out. One dollar in Bob bucks. <laughs> Bob bucks. <laughs> it's gonna be worth a lot when the dollar crashes. Yeah. Um, invest now. It's like Bitcoin. <laughs> Shouldn't forget Ghostbusters as well. Ghostbusters. Yeah, well, well, we'll we'll get to that in a second. Excellent. But I, I would like to say that all the games that we've just kind of named have all been very different from anything that Activision published before. I guess Space Shuttle was an attempt to kind of move in that direction, uh, like a simulation, more deeper adventure type game. But you know, as as much as moving away from the twenty six hundred had its detriment, uh, you know, and and maybe made Activision work harder for less money, it did liberate them to come up with more ambitious or, you know, to bring in more ambitious concepts to do things that you could not have done on the 2600. Like, little computer people sure would not have worked on the 2600. So there was, you know, even even with some of the challenges that Activision now faced, there was this kind of creative fertility that 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 took place and uh, Ghostbusters I think is a, a pretty good example of how their action games became larger and more sophisticated uh, even though the game does have some troubles to it like design issues yeah like it, it does a lot of stuff uh, and you know coming based on a a, a movie like licensed games weren't supposed to be good or yeah. ambitious. What's this craziness? I do want to do a Ghostbusters episode, uh, a remake of the one we did a long time ago. That was like my first one I phoned in on. But I, I love this game. But essentially, it is the entire game is building up enough resources to withstand the awful gauntlet at the end. Just right. like the entire game is preparing for that final battle. But I was reading about the making of it. It was interesting. I, I feel like the, the world definitely moved a lot slower back then. But the movie was summer and the game came out at Christmas and they were worried they missed the train on that movie. Movie, but I feel like later in the 90s, games would come out a year, maybe two years after the movie, like things like GoldenEye. So it's, it's funny they were worried about this this uh, kind of months-long gap between the movie and the game when it was really just like, man, the world was moving so slow back then. I, I assume the movie was still in theaters by Christmas too. Yeah, I remember uh, Ghostbusters being one of those uh, movies that was held over. This was something mm-hmm. you would see yeah. in the newspaper, right? And it's like, yeah, we're ho- you can keep watching, like held over another week and then another week because – that there was no on demand. Yeah. yeah. Was, so it's like, well, it, it's still in the theater. And I mean, Ghostbusters, I saw a ton in the theater. So mm. um, it was one of my favorites. Yeah, it's Jazz, a, it seemed like you had something you wanted to say about Ghostbusters. Yeah, it was just, I, I think you've already said it. It was unusual for the time. It, you know, it wasn't a great game retrospectively, but 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 nevertheless, it was it was ambitious. Mm-hmm. It, it, it captured different scenes of the movie. Uh, on the Commodore 64, it, had a, it actually had the music. Yeah, it's, well. it's like a multi-format game. Yeah, and it, it, so it was just a, just a really unusual, quite inspiring movie time for for its time. You know, I mean, when you look back at, at uh, sort of a lot of the the, the dross that that really helped crash the the, the market in '83 out here, um, you know, this, this was the, you could really see that they were trying to articulate sort of the movie through video games and it, uh, to me it's one of the very early video games that successfully captured the essence of the movie yeah mm-hmm. even if the uh, 
Ecto One didn't have a ghost vacuum. On That's true. Yeah, I mean, but it should have. <laughs> when I did that episode, I watched the Ghostbusters movie. It was screening somewhere near me after that, and I was like, "Wow, they 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 chose really specific moments to make into game scenes. Like the them running up the stairs is uh, right out of the movie. Like mm-hmm. it's just a joke in the movie that they turn into the final level of the game. Yeah. They're out of breath because they're running up the stairs, and they're a bunch of middle aged fat guys yeah. with all these proton packs on their backs. Well, I guess maybe just Ray is the fat guy, but still, it was just played for comedy. But it's it's, it's an intense final confrontation in the game which is a, a terrible level in the NES game I assume it might be better in the Commodore original um, I think that NES port is really bad from what I've heard um, based on the original yeah you have completed a great game I yes think, I call it that English <laughs> congratulations yeah, yeah, yeah something yeah, like that. that right um, go ahead oh go ahead oh, I was just saying um, the Ghostbusters to Bob's point it was done very quickly um, and was basically a sort of reskin of a yeah. game in development right Oh, mm-hmm. like car battle or something, or uh, battle car, or uh, car wars. Car I think. wars. Yeah. yeah. David Crane was working on a game that was basically upgrading cars, um, and then they came to the team and said, "You know, they, we have the opportunity for the Ghostbusters license. Um, can we do anything with this?" Hmm. And so they they repackaged that, and uh, I believe this was one of the first games where they started pulling in additional team members to work on other parts of the game. Yeah, it was a six-week process, and it was kind of all hands on deck to get this game finished, even though it was based on an original game. It was um, a very complex undertaking to just get it out in time you know, right. for Christmas. Yeah, so one other thing that's happening at this time in Activision history is like you know, 83 through 86 is uh, the original founders are leaving um, along with a lot of other people – to sort of brain drain, right? I think there's interviews where they say, yeah, all of a sudden my stock was worth a tenth of what it was before. <laughs> um, and, you know, we're, we were working on things we didn't want to work on. And so they kind of splintered off to form other A, other game companies that starts with A, like Absolute and Accolade. I feel so like eventually show... you got to Aardvark. Yeah, right. <laughs> they were all trying to climb up the phone book before who they used to work for. So it was like Atari, then Activision, right. then Accolade, then Absolute, and then I don't know what else came after that. Yeah, wasn't that like the added bonus when they formed Activision is that it would it was ahead of yep. Atari yeah, and exactly. the CS Guide or something? Yeah. Back when that mattered, <laughs> like alphabetical right. order yeah. listings. AAA games. <laughs> all right. Um, so yeah, uh, there were some other pretty ambitious games around this time. Um, you started to get more exploratory games. I mean, Pitfall, we talked about how that was an adventure, but Pitfall 2 was even more so. It was not just a, like a linear game going straight across, but it descended in, it was the Lost Caverns and it descended down underground and had a mapped out structure, um, to really, you know, again, kind of get to that UK, um, sort of screen by screen flick scroll adventure treasure hunting type game um and that was that was developed by David Crane also wasn't it yeah i think so yeah i think so um and then you had hero which uh was not really exploratory but it did you know kind of you were like a guy in a jetpack and you could shoot and uh you were like descending down into these stages and they became gradually more complex as you went from stage to stage but like each level was its own sort of maze that you had to fight through, and you had to like place bombs. It's been a while since I've played it. Yeah, I think you rescue people as yeah. well. Yeah, you rescue people and you place bombs to get the doors. And there's things like you would come down a shaft and you would turn off the lights, basically. So uh, and then you have to go back up to turn the light back on. <clears throat> um, yeah, a lot of verticality. I, I loved. I played Hero. I think on probably the Apple II, um, but that that was probably my favorite game of this era. 
And uh, finally, one of the last games I want to highlight is Shanghai, which uh, was was published by Activision and has been cloned ruthlessly through the years, also released on tons of platforms. But it's it's an interesting game because it was developed by, uh, I think his name was Doug Brody, uh, who was a gymnast who had fallen uh, mm. while performing and had become a quadriplegic. And like he came up with this game game concept, which may or may not have been based on like a you know more traditional Chinese game. There's some debate about the inspiration and the origins of it, but um, it's a very like slow paced kind of game, uh, puzzle game almost, where you take mahjong tiles and you just have a stack of them, and you have to match two pieces at a time. You can only pick them from the edge of the stack, and it's like kind of like a uh, the pile it like gets smaller, you know, like fewer pieces stacked uh, as you get higher. So there's lots of exposed edges, but there is a certain strategy to it because it's easy to uh, take out like pieces and then lock yourself into sort of a situation where you get to the very end and there's like pieces trapped inside of each other. Uh, like uh, it's it's hard to explain, but anyway, it's kind of like it's, solitaire, right? Yeah, it's, it's like, kind of like solitaire yeah. a little bit, but it, yeah. it's it's like visual matching, and it uses like I said the mahjong tiles. So mm-hmm. you're you're kind of like looking to recognize Chinese characters, either numbers or like the chrysanthemum art, or uh, like north, south, east, west, or whatever. Um, so it's it's just a kind of a, a very different game, but went on to become. I think you know, kind of like an under understated classic. It's it's been everywhere, and everyone has played some version of it. Anyway, uh, we'll kind of wind this up by talking about sort of the business moves that spelled the end of, of, of Activision. You know, around the time that it moved into PCs, it started to, I think, you know, because there were more challenges in, in the industry and, and games were harder to sell on PCs, and it wasn't the, the salad years of the Atari 2600, they began to diversify. Um, and the guy who ran the company at the Bruce time, Davis. Bruce Davis, um, started to look into other kinds of software like productivity apps. And around this time, they bought uh, Infocom, the legendary text adventure maker, who had also kind of caused trouble for themselves. One, by not being able to evolve with the times and move satisfactorily away from text adventures as graphics were becoming more and more important to games. But also because Infocom, as uh, Steve mentioned before the show, kind of moved into these sort of uh, productivity apps that didn't necessarily match what people wanted from Infocom. Yeah, there was like a big bet. I think it was called like Counterpoint or something like that, which was sort of their big big goal. And it, it failed. And right after that, that failed that, you know, they ended up selling to Activision. So Yeah, and so throughout the the second half of the 80s, you know, you, you saw Activision's name um, – on all kinds of PC games, on what few Atari games were coming out. Um, you began to see them pick up more and more licensed games. Uh, Rampage, Kung Fu Master, Afterburner Quartet, lots of... Uh, Sega. Right? Lots of Sega in there. Lots of, yeah, Wonder Boy. 
Uh, some Data East, mm. Karnov, um, Commando, that's Capcom. Kung Fu was IREM. Rampage was Midway, mm-hmm. uh, wasn't it? Yeah. Mm. So, um, were, these, they were, were these some of these picked up from the UK? Because I, I know that they be, were kind probably, of... Probably um, so. They published Spin Design right here, which is a fantastic kind of combination of Marble Madness and a sort of an adventure game, which is a sort of a flick screen game where you controlled a little spinning top and, and you'd sort of uh, make your way around these quite complex environments um, and, and, and attempt to sort of reach the end of the maze. Um, and that was a UK game published by Electric Dreams, and it was published out here by Activision. Yeah, I think a lot of these, they just picked up the, the, the software that had been developed and they just distributed it here. So they were moving into sort of like beyond just a third-party developer to a third-party publisher. Uh, and No original titles during this yeah, time. Yeah, I, mean, right? I, I think they few, made some. Right. Um, I mean, you know, they were publishing for NES uh, in the late 80s and into mm-hmm. the early 90s. None of those games were actually any good. No. Um, That's true, but a lot of the actually it's a list that, of terrible games like Ghostbusters. They you know that was their game, but I think it was developed by I don't know probably Tose or someone. Yeah, and also by '88, it wasn't the most uh, yeah. with it game, <laughs> especially on the NES when big cool games were coming out. Uh, Ghostbusters looked pretty primitive. Yeah, like Three Stooges. That was a Cinemaware game. Yeah, yeah. Um, Super Pitfall was. Uh, that was also uh, that was Pony Canyon, I think. Um, just yeah. yeah, just picking up lots of games and not making good choices. Uh, so things were looking pretty dire. And around this time, right as they start to be uh, right as they started to publish on NES, they changed their name to MediaGenic, which was mm. meant to represent the company's expanded focus. They weren't just video games; they were all media. Yeah, and this is a this was a terrible move. This is our cliffhanger. Uh, what? Yeah. Will Activision be okay? <laughs> no, actually, they won't. The company would have gone bankrupt and out of business, except a dude named Bobby, Bobby Kotick, who was like 25 years old at the time, swept in with some German investors, I think. And they basically bought the company to serve as a tax write off. But Kotick was like, you know, I think I can turn this around. And he did. And Activision mm-hmm. became a giant 10 years later. It's crazy. Yeah, they went chapter 11, right? Uh, did they go Chapter Eleven? Think, yeah, I in order so. to to reorganize. Oh, that's death. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the death knell, I think, for Mediagenic was actually the lawsuit, like the Magnavox Sanders right. Associates oh, patent. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Uh, yeah, real quick. Um, I mean, it was the the theory that uh, Ralph Baer, when he was working at Sanders, effectively invented video games. I think that the patent is very broad, um, mm. and they were trying to apply that to everything, and almost everybody settled, um, but. Uh, you know, Bruce Davis, being an intellectual property lawyer, I think thought that he could beat it. Um, and then they had a really bad year, and then the judgment came down to where uh, you know Phillips uh, won uh, mm-hmm. the suit, and so it was kind of the double whammy. Uh, and at that point, I think that's when Kotick kind of jumped in and said, you know, basically t- take this amount of money for the settlement, or you're getting nothing because we're going to die anyway. Right? <laughs> Can someone remind me what the first big Activision game was after this period? Um, I'm just curious. I'm, I'm sure it's obvious, but I can't think of it. Like, what was the first game that, oh, Activision's back, here's their next big game? I mean, I realize what they make now, but I'm just trying to 
figure out was like the SNES, the PS1 era. Like what what was Activision's like return know. to form? Super Pitfall. I, mm. I I actually have no idea. That is, Tony Hawk. I don't. Were they were they a Activision? Hell of a question. Yeah, I'm sorry. I thought it was a stupid question, but I guess not. No, no. I actually I, I wasn't know. looking beyond um, beyond the mediagenic years because that's kind of like. The company fizzled out and died, and right, and then well, it became a different company. Basically, I, yeah. I realized in the PS One era, they had all of those Atari Twenty Six Hundred remakes, which were huge, like the Frogger remake, um, like Pong remake. Those were Activision, I believe. I remember seeing their logo on the boxes, right? Um, and the Frogger, especially, was just this mega hit, and I kept seeing sequels to their Frogger remake. Pong was Atari. That was Atari? Yeah. For some reason, I thought, okay, yeah. Maybe I'm thinking of Atari then. So the, the anthology stuff started coming out around that yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. So or, you know, like... You know what? Frogger might have been Atari too. I apologize. Rebo- rebooting oh, yeah, there was Q-Bert. Activision and Anthology. Yeah. yeah. Um, hang so on. when did Mediagenic become Mediagenic and then they turned back into Activision? Well, it was they were Mediagenic in 88. Yeah, and then Kotick changed it back it's almost immediately after mm. that transaction. So that's what... 80, uh, Almost like maybe a year or two later, like not very long. I mean, the Activision label never completely went away. They were still publishing games under that name, like as a label, but that was the games label of Mediagenic. So I can't actually find a hard demarcation. I don't know if at any point there was, um, you know, like a, hey, we're back. Remember Activision, that company you loved? Well, they're cool again. Because um, I'm looking at the early 90s stuff that they published and mm, not seeing a lot to love here. Um, I remember with sort of weird games like Dynamite Ducks, which is a really obscure conversion of a Sega arcade game. And I, I remember Ghostbusters 2. Um, yeah. They did an adventure based on Shogun, James Clavel's Shogun. It was an old. It was an old company. It felt like a company that would sort of basically release virtually anything to keep itself alive. <laughs> yeah. So it was, you know, it published anything that that, that that it seemed halfway decent. Yeah. Yeah. I don't really know at what point Activision went from being like this company that barely held on to. Whoa, they're huge. I don't know. I, I'm sure. I'm sure our listeners are pulling their hair out because we're missing something obvious. But maybe it was Call of Duty One. Uh, I don't know. Well, I, I mean, the Adventures yeah. of Rad Gravity was. Uh, <laughs> title. That really nice. turned things around. That was, yes. Yeah. Well, like in the '90s, what you you have stuff like Tony Hawk, as you mentioned. Yeah, Tony Hawk. And they definitely. did publishing of things like Quake Two or like Mech Warrior or something like that. I, I seem to remember the Activision logo popping up. Right. Um, at those points, so you know. I remember there's a million versions of MechWarrior 2 for all the different 3D cards uh, that were coming out. So Yeah, I mean, they kept making like Infocom sequels and collections and <clears throat> things like Return to Zork into the 90s. So they were definitely kind of keeping that line alive. They had Pitfall the Mayan Adventure. Interstate 76, I just remembered. Yep. <laughs> oh, yeah. So Excellent were, game. I don't know. Like, It's kind of a weird company. You can't point to any one point past the mediagenic years and say like, this is it. This is when they became huge. It was more like they just kind of gradually, you know, diversified and built up and they published on a lot of platforms and they were there kind of like day one for just about every new system, Game Boy, Super NES, PC, Jaguar. 
Uh, maybe not Jaguar, but let's, <laughs> let's pretend Jaguar. I'm willing to say Tony Hawk because I feel like that's the first time uh, maybe for them in a long time they had this super popular, super ubiquitous game that everyone played. It sold it millions. Be. Yeah. Right. And it's weird to think that was like there was like a 10-year downtime or right. 10 years of just like finding their way, publishing anything before they had a game you associated with their brand like Tony Hawk, Call of Duty, uh, now Destiny. That's Activision, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there, I mean, I was saying – I think they were saying after Chapter 11 or after Kodak came in – the company was down to just sort of a couple dozen people, mm, right, yeah. from from peaks of hundreds. I, I really think they right? were just like a publishing enterprise at that point yeah, for it's like, a while. I saw Alundra 2 on there as an Activision game uh, published. That's weird. Yeah. yeah. yeah Quake 2 was one, one of theirs that they published, which was surprised me. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. So any final thoughts on Activision, the golden years, um, looking back into the the hazy past of the Atari 2600 and C64? Uh, it's interesting to see these these companies uh, start as artists wanting to be recognized and then just becoming ruthless capitalists that have seemingly uh, no regard for the art of making games. But I guess that's just the natural progression of any business. But uh, it's really interesting to see um, – them recognizing their talents, recognizing their um, their skill at making games and real recognizing it's not just like building a machine. It's not just, uh, you know, physical labor. There, there's an art to it. There's design to it. And them moving out on their own really made it viable for other people too. So I feel it's very important. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's basically two different companies. They might as well be, right? The yeah, Activision, for sure. I remember as a kid is – these games are awesome. You know, they're recognizing the creators. Like it, it's the golden age, and I think one of the impressive things about Activision now is, uh, you know, since Kodak took over, they've expanded. Right, they've survived a, a lot of really bad times in the games mm, industry sure. and succeeded. Right, you know, and then up to you know Activision Blizzard now. So um, it's incredibly impressive, and I think that there's a story to be told about. You know, we're sitting here thinking, what brought Activision back? You know. Back in the in the nineties, there is a story there about how they went from, you know, going back down to a handful of people recovering from bankruptcy to um, sort of the you know juggernaut that they are now in the industry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was for me. I mean, the early days of Activision, they just they just made exceedingly good games, and uh, you know, a lot of some some of them were kind of copies and clones of concepts but there was some really innovative ideas that were being kicked around at the time by a, a small group of people and i think you know they would become very influential throughout the games industry uh you know to me you know activision was a company that bought me the the, the lucasfilm games and mm. th- those were just amazing and i'm i'm, I'm really glad that they, they published those and, and 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 bought those and they were just there's, there's, there's another po- you know podcast all about LucasArts games and Lucasfilm games, but they 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 were particularly brilliant, and and but I associate those with Activision, funnily enough, mm. rather than Lucasfilm. Mm. Interesting. So um, I really want to recommend everyone uh, check out a site called the Digital Antiquarian, Antiquarian, uh, which is written by a guy named Jimmy Mayer. Uh, it's at filfre, f i l f r e dot net. Um, 
And he's written about a lot of basically PC history in the early 80s and into the late 80s, uh, covering a lot of really broad topics. But he has a couple of really great articles on Infocom, on early Activision, and on Mediagenic. And they were invaluable resources for this episode, um, some of the best games history writing I've seen. So everyone definitely check them out. Uh, check him out, I guess. And uh, he's got a Patreon, so you know maybe throw a few bucks his way to continue mm-hmm. doing this great work. Um, so anyway, I think that wraps it up for this episode. Steve, Jazz, Bob, thank you for shoring up my weaknesses about the history of Activision. Uh, I think together we were comprehensive, like a like a knowledge Voltron. <laughs> I was here for the spider-based game. Yes, right. that was excellent. <laughs> Just for that. I can feel them crawling all over uh, me right now. Uh, so, yeah, guys, why don't you tell us where we can find you on the internet? Um, I'm uh, at Stephen P. Lynn on Twitter and stevelin.com. I'm at Jazz Rignall at Twitter, and you can read me on usgamer.net every day. Wow. I have a lot of plugs. You guys kept it economical. <laughs> uh, you can find me on Twitter as Bob Servo. Um, I do too much stuff. So one of those things is Talking Simpsons. It's a weekly chronological exploration of The Simpsons every Wednesday at lasertimepodcast.com or talkingsimpsons.com or look for Talking Simpsons in your podcast machine. Every episode is a new episode of The Simpsons in chronological order. And at this point in time, I think we'll be in season five. And Steve told me he uh, he endorses it yes. formally. Yes, uh, he enjoys walking it. Walking through Japan for you know six weeks, I listened to everything that I could. And That's it was awesome. Amazing. I, I always like to hear people like the show, so thanks so much, Steve. And um, yes, uh, I also write every day on fandom.com about video games. And every other Thursday, something off of the com, I have a new comedy article there. And that's all I do. Um, that's it. As for me, you can find me here at the Retronauts Podcast and at Retronauts.com, which is updated daily with cool things about old things. And, uh, of course, we are supported through the generosity of you, the listener, through Patreon.com, Patreon.com slash Retronauts, and Patreon.com slash GameSpite. The first is for the podcast. The second is for video endeavors such as Game Boy World and Good Intentions and so on and forth. Oh, Gintendo. Yes, that's Mm -hmm. great. Um, Just, you know, Talking about the history of video games and showing it off sometimes. Uh, It's what I do and uh, do with the help of these cool people and you. Um, Also, you can read my my design in action column at US Gamer every Wednesday, which is awesome. And you should definitely read because why wouldn't you? So that about wraps it up for for this episode. Um, Besides the Patreon thing, you can download us at iTunes. We're Retronauts. Uh, follow us on Twitter. Um, pretty much that's that's about the, the shape of it, yeah. You should follow Facebook, though. I oh, yes, think. Facebook is good, too. Um, we, will, we will talk you, you to you. You can like us, yeah. and we will respond. We also respond on the blog and on Twitter, but, you know, we're, we're easy to reach. We're accessible human beings uh, because we love talking about video game history, and we love talking to you about video Just game history. Just don't be mean to me. I don't like it. <laughs> yeah, we're all a little fragile. It's video games. What can I say? Uh, so anyway, for everyone here at Retronauts, this is Jeremy Parrish saying thanks again, and we'll be back next week with another episode of the show because we're weekly now. Thank you.